everyone. We're back with our third episode of the Utility Strategy uh, Podcast, the first construction podcast to shine a light on what we love to call utility strategy. Uh, as we all know, buried utilities pose an enormous risk to any construction project, uh, often causing schedule overruns, unexpected costs, and uh, of course, utility strikes. Uh, but with the right utility strategy, we're able to mitigate that risk and streamline our project, uh, and that's what our podcast is all about. Uh, sharing and gaining all kinds of insights that uh, will enable just that. Um, helping project managers, utility coordinators, estimators, mappers, planners, designers, engineers, uh, and any other stakeholders uh, overcome the challenges of buried utilities in our site or in our right-of-way. Um, having said that, today we're going to be doing something a bit different. We're going to take a step back and take a look at the construction industry as a whole and how emerging technologies can change the way we've been doing things uh, since practically forever. And to help us do that, we have here with us today Hugh Seaton, which I hope uh, you're all following uh, his content on LinkedIn. Uh, Hugh is the general manager of Cross Crosswalk by TSI. Uh, he's the author of the Construction Technology Handbook and publisher of both the Construction Future podcast and Construction Technology Quarterly, which is awesome, awesome content. Uh, prior to CSI, he was the general manager of Adapt XR Learning, a VR, AR unit of the Glimpse Group. Uh, Hugh has held senior technology marketing positions at uh, Sony, AOL, and he's worked for, uh, for and with companies like Google, Blizzard, and many others. So, uh, Hugh, without uh, further ado, uh, welcome to our podcast. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, give, us, give us some background uh, with, with your career path. How did you find yourself in construction tech? And Hang what on. is construction tech actually? I, I just want to say one thing. Just the fact that you said AOL is kind of dating him along with us. The fact that I know what AOL is and the fact that he said AOL, I, you know, it's funny because lately I, I've mentioned, uh, I, I told someone I used to have an ICQ account and this kid was looking at me like I was crazy. And I said, what, MSM Messenger? And he still was looking at me. And then I said, you know, it's a continuation of AOL and so on and so forth. And he was still, he was just puzzled. So it's really amazing how in such a short time, there's been such a paramount shift in names and so on and so forth. And let's look 10 years down the road. No one's going to remember Facebook. It's all meta. So it's really amazing how things evolve. Sorry, I just had to introduce no, it's that. okay. The fact that you said it, it's all meta is, is a nice pun. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, to answer, that's, that's great. And I think it speaks to what we're talking about today, right, is how quickly things can shift and how what looks like the immutable bedrock of a technology can change. And it happens a little quicker with consumers and the fact that we went from laptops to or desktops to phones kind of helped with that. Um, but to answer your question, David, I, I spent about 20 years in technology marketing. Uh, that's where the Sony and the AOL, I mean, so you can't quite see the gray here, but I've been around a little bit. Um, I, about 10 years of that was in greater China. And while I was there, 
um, I started working on BIM and specifically helping companies to market their BIM services. And that led, this was about 12 years ago, that led down a path that got me increasingly involved. I came back to the U.S. in 2012, um, was part of the, the founding team of the AEC Hackathon. It wasn't my idea, but I was there to serve pizza. Um, but that really continued getting me excited. And I've run a bunch of events and done this and that. Um, about five years ago, excuse me, seven years ago now, I, I started a company that I eventually sold to the Glimpse Group. And along the way, we were building some AI voice and some other things that are in the construction, specifically to the construction field. So I was already doing things in AEC generally, but, but I got very focused on construction as a, as a kind of subset of that. While I was building, you know, building up that company, I started the process of, of writing the book and doing some other things, which just got me more and more involved. And at the end of the day, I'm, this is kind of the rest of my career. I'm, I, I made up my mind about 10 years ago, but increasingly, you know, more concretely, that there's, if we can solve is the wrong word, to the degree we can make construction, whether it's homes, offices, or bridges and build and, and, and you know, roads, better than it is now, it's, it's, it's a non-negotiable point, whether it's the, the price of housing, whether it's sustainability, whether it's climate change, there's a hundred reasons why this needs to be increasingly more efficient, more sophisticated, safer, cheaper. Um, and I think that the technology plays an enormous role on, uh, in that everywhere from how the field operates to how design gets done, to how specifications are done. And, you know, in, in the case of, of what you do, understanding the ground that you're building on and what's, what's you're connecting to and how it's, you know what I mean? Like the, the context that you're building in is enormously important. I was really excited when you guys came to me and started talking about what you do for that reason is that it's often underlooked, overlooked rather that as, as well as we do on the, on the field, at the end of the day, you're connecting into a network, you're connecting into a, a context. So I think all of that feeds together and really lights my fire, obviously. Well, Hugh, when, when, I, when I listen to you speak, you're always talking about that uh, construction world, that vertical world, that building world. And I know that, uh, that, is, that is your forte. And what I really like is our connection and how you've actually identified the connection into the network. It's not just that one individual building, but it's everything that's going to connect into. And it's really incredible how things have uh, just evolved over the last 20 years, and especially in the building trends. And you, you talked about BIM, and BIM was such a, it, it was never a new idea, but it was a, it's a new, a new take on an idea where you're taking things and actually modeling them in real time, building finish management, modeling in real time as you're going along, and you could see what will connect into what, how things will actually be built. And now the whole process of automating that and AI is so exciting, especially in uh, the construction world today, and especially in the challenges we have today. Can you talk about the... Uh, just a little bit what you think uh, the, the, the meaning of AI would do to the BIM industry and just in, in general construction industry. Yeah, I, that's a, let's start with BIM. One of the things that, that is, you know, BIM is such a big word, right? But what you think about it in terms of levels of, of specificity, so level 100 is kind of uh, conceptual and level 200 is getting close to constructible, 300 is not quite there, Four, 350 is typically... BIM detailing. And what BIM detailing often means is it's an easy place to answer your question because you wind up doing a ton of repetitive tasks and people are starting to automate that already. And that's a pretty easy, easy start. 
But the next thing after that is what happens if you put through, and people are doing this, you know, hundreds and hundreds of BIM models through an AI kind of process. And that process will often be group it and tell me what's, what you're seeing. And then we'll use that as tags to then go create a classifier later. I know that there's a bunch of jargon there, but essentially let the, let the data tell you where the groupings and patterns are, right? And then let take those patterns and then go and tag things that you've seen so you can start to classify. This looks like a room that you're going to have this problem with, or this looks like, you know, ground where you're going to have these sorts of issues if you build on it. So I think that, that where AI can go is, and it is going, it's just right now, it's, it's hard to share data across projects, even within a company. And across companies, it's, it's really hard. Um, and that's a problem that's being looked at. It's just, it's thorny. Um, and, you know, a, a great example, when you talk to folks like Procore, who are, you know, that's a, facil- a, a project management software, within one general contractor, getting people to put things in the same way so they can ladder up to a dashboard can take, you know, something like 18 months, 18 to 24 months. Not all of that is them being slow. Some of it is people aren't going to change in the middle of a project. So if your average project is 18 months, it's a reasonable assumption that you'll go, you'll be able to really implement in that time. But nevertheless, that's still 18 months. It just took you to have all of your systems in one company talking to each other in a useful way. If you take BIM as a much more complex set of possibilities and, you know, different buildings and so on, being able to aggregate that together so that you can teach a model um, is, is a challenge that I think, A, the data is getting better and people are recognizing the need for it. B, people are getting better at translating between tomato and tomato. I have no idea what a big, big deal that is. That, you know, engineer A calls it a, you know, a flugel binder and engineer B calls it a flugel binder. And you're like, oh, my God, it's just a bolt. Um, that happens all the time. Uh, but that's getting better and better. The, the translators are getting better and better. Um, and the final piece is just kind of the recognition that this is worth doing. And I, I don't think we're all the way there yet in terms of uh, the legal side of data. I think the industry is just on the cusp of starting to say, we generate a lot of value with this. How, do, how are we going to apportion that value, whether it's the owner, the GC, or the subcontractor? So anyway, I really over-answered your question, but I think there's a lot of potential, and I'd, as ever, it starts with the data. It's a fantastic thing. So I, one of the things I really see, the, the connection between the above-ground or the above-ground building and the underground building is the ability for clash detection with BIM. And of course, it's all about understanding staging, all about understanding what is going to work, what is not going to work. And that was one of the most the, the most significant things which I saw, in, especially in BIM, was you were able to stage all your different uh, progress, your all your different milestones within a building and see, wait a minute, if I put in this duct here before I put in the, the air exchange, would it actually work? And would I have a conflict? And how would I get around it? And really, the truth is seeing is believing. And having that understanding that you know, you've seen how it should be built, you've seen what would clash and how to actually avoid those, again, within the construction industry is paramount. Now, a lot of some of the complaints I've always heard is it looks good on a model, but can it actually be built? Can you talk about that a little bit? Because a lot of times it looks great in BIM, you know, here we go, you know, the, the engineer designed a 45, 45, 45, but actually you need a 22 and then a you know a 45, then another 22 and a 22 and so on and so forth. Like, can you talk about that? Can you talk about the realities of BIM and the realities of supply chain, the realities of all the different things that come into effect when you're doing a heavy care, a, a vertical construction or heavy construction or civil construction even? Is there a, 
Yeah, I think there's there's a couple pieces in there. The, the, the constructability has been an issue now for, that's actually one of the first things we did with our hackathon was, was start looking at, this is, you know, was this nine years ago? Um, clash detection was new then, and it's, it's pretty good now. But the point of constructability is, is different because you're asking, what does that mean? And not only constructability, but operability of the, of the, the building afterwards. Josh Bone is, uh, is, is executive director at, at, uh, Electri, which is part of the, the National Electrical Contractors Association. Um, so as a result, he's spent a lot of time talking to, 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 uh, electrical contractors, which is getting to your question. And he was telling me at one point in his career, he was working at a company where every single BIM model they ever got, they had to drop the ceiling six inches. Because in a model, it is exactly your point. In a model, it looked great, but the electrical contractors were like, how are you ever going to maintain that or install it or, you know, fix it, whatever. So, so I think that, that there is a the balance right now between someone who's good at the, the modeling, the Revit, and someone who's good, who actually understands how to build things. And I think a lot of companies that are doing de- detailing are, I don't want to say struggling, but that's part of their process is, do I pull someone from the field and teach them BIM or do I teach someone who's, you know, who do I teach someone who knows BIM about the field? My personal feeling, the second way is very hard because the implications in construction, it's like the, the, this thing has a knock on effect on five other things that only experience teaches you. So, I, I mean, look, I, it's not my job. So I want to be careful how much, how strong my opinions are, but I have found that being in the field provides a sense of understanding the interconnectedness of things. That's really hard to teach someone in abstract. So anyway, I think what's, what's happening is people are getting better and better at detailing. They're getting better at, they, oh, most people have a, a failure or an expensive correction in their, in their past. So they've learned the lessons you're talking about, Ophir, that, that, you know, it may look good, but are those, you know, are the tolerances too, even as, even as much as are the tolerances too tight? You know what I mean? Like the, the fabricated materials aren't going to be as even as our model says. So we need to allow for the fact that there's a little bit of, you know, a weave or there's a little bit of variance. Um, and I think that's, that alone is, is something that takes a minute to, to figure out. Um, so that was kind of the BIM question. Hmm. Okay, at let's, uh, let's yeah. uh, talk a bit about the um, heavy civil sector. Uh, Hugh, you've you've uh, you've touched on this a bit in your uh, uh, in your quarterly review. Uh, what what do you think of the specific opportunities in this sector uh, compared to the other subsectors of the construction industry? I think there may or may not be a really big check that's primarily going at this part of the industry, which could be two hundred billion extra a year, depending on where it lands. At some point, someone has to fix the infrastructure. If it's not this administration, it'll be another one. So I think that, that, you know, A, we don't have enough people at the current level of spending. Um, in some ways, heavy civil can be more automatable because you're often doing big stretches of things. So you may find that robotics winds up finding a place if there is this much money and or, and or you know, um, local municipalities decide to spend more to, uh, to upgrade some of their infrastructure. Because American infrastructure is undeniably in need of more investment and more work. And that's going to come one way or the other. So I think that the industry is going to grow. I think that there's, there's a strong argument for the introduction of robotics for things that are, are very regular and large. A great example is there's a, there's a robot that will do um, twist tying for rebar. 
but it doesn't work in, in small places and it doesn't work in irregular. It's good for big slabs, which, you know, that's a, I can't imagine doing a like, oh my gosh. So it's perfect because no one wants to do that. And it's, it's big and you can put the thing on wheels and across it goes. Well, that's, that's, I think probably a, a first start and I'm sure it'll get more and more sophisticated and won't need, you know, an acre at a time. So I think that you're going to find technology really finds a place in heavy civil. Um, that said, the people doing heavy civil, whether it's because you're, 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 um, you're forced into lowest bid um, and your, your ultimate customer is a municipality or the federal government, that's probably a countervailing in terms of, in terms of technology. Um, because it, it, A, the government isn't famous for being fast at anything. They also have, um, it, depending on how the arrangement is, they have, there's a thing called FedRAMP, which is, which is the, the kind of federal certification that you've got your cybersecurity in order, and it's, it's really expensive. So not everybody's going to be in a place to do that. So I think on the one hand, on the demand side, you've got a lot of pressure towards um, automating and, and introduction of new technology. On the same side, though, it's also on the demand side, you have a, a difficult set of people to sell into. So I think that, that the need is there. The process of adoption might be bumpier than it might be for, for you know, building the, new, the next Apple store. You know what? I, I, you just said something really interesting. I was just looking it up a second ago. Isn't there a, uh, a Congress Act for, uh, for QBS qualitative based selection? And especially with ACEC, they were talking about uh, QBS a lot. And then you just said low bid. So how do you see that affecting the industry in terms of, you know, is it, uh, is it an economic factor? Is it a let's just get it done factor? What, what do you see that they're actually going to low bid versus QBS and that's qualitative based selection? Yeah, I think Q, I don't. I'm not as familiar with QBS as I am of the reality that that governments everywhere are scared to death of looking like they're corrupt. So they'll do they'll spend money and waste money to make it not look like they were in any way possibly corrupt. So I think that it depends on on who your buyer is. If it's a state with federal funds, I, again, I'm not as familiar with the QBS legislation, but that may or may not have an impact. If it's federal only, that's a pretty small percentage of. Direct federal is a pretty small percentage of overall civil, as I recall. Most of it is is subsidized by the feds, but is done by states and, and, and local, where, again, you have this big issue that, you know, you could imagine someone in, in, in Washington not being worried about a bridge in Illinois coming back to them as being, you know, I, I got paid for that. But if you're a, a, a state senator in you know, someone who's approving a state budget to do something, you're really worried about that. I mean, I've done some work with the University of Connecticut and they bend over, I mean, oh my God, the number of things, the hoops you have to go through to prove that you're not in any way related. You didn't even have a coffee with anybody that works in the, in the, in the state government. So I think that that's, gonna, that's not going away. The, the, the concern about paper trail and making sure that, that you absolutely got the best deal. So the qualitative, I hope they can do that because I think it's a real impediment to um, to efficiency and to better quality, that that it has to be the lowest bidder. That's really interesting. Now, in terms of uh, looking at uh, civil infrastructure in the uh, the infrastructure world, and you were you were saying that you know somebody's going to have to deal with it. I look at this pandemic as a classic example of us taxing our infrastructure. We went from a work based economy where everyone is going to the office, they're going to their places of work, to all of a sudden being at home in the work from home model and the, the amount of tax it actually, or the amount of weight it put on our, 
our rural networks and our complete networks was absolutely extraordinary. The fact that we were able to actually do it and adapt and pivot is incredible, but it really highlighted the cracks in the infrastructure world. And the same thing I find with the densification of the urban sector, they were talking about environmental densification, building up versus building out. And now that we had the, uh, now that we're just almost post pandemic, I hope, that you know, everyone wanted his little piece of the uh, little piece of the uh, of the uh, suburban dream. You know, having a having a nice big lot and having a, a nice patio and a you know a nice house to work in versus the condo at home. You know, versus being stuck in a downtown core with another fifteen hundred people in a uh, in a vertical development. So, what aspect do you think that uh, that's actually going to bring upon in the uh, civil construction world or even in the heavy civil or in the building world? from your point of view? That's a great question. I think they're, they're, they're different. And I think we don't know yet. We really don't. We don't know where the world, where it's going to land in terms of what cities make sense and what cities maybe don't need to be as big as they were. I'm in Austin, Texas right now, which is growing incredibly. Now, some of that, and because people want to be near a city, but they don't necessarily want to be paying the rents of some of the larger cities. Um, you know, you say that and New York had like, it feels like two weeks of, of panic. And now it, the, the rents are as high as they ever were because people still want to live there. So, and, and I, so the question is, do you need to live there for work or do you want to live there because there's great museums and restaurants and so on? And I think that's not everybody agrees on that. You know, there are tons of people who love the fact that they've got an acre in Virginia and they, they don't, you know, take some two hours to get to a, a, a city center. And then there's clearly eight and a half million people in New York that are okay with everything that implies. You know, I think that the, 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 the related to that, though, is some of our infrastructure, in particular, roads and bridges get a lot of attention. But, you know, back to New York for just a sec, the rail infrastructure in the U.S. is, is crazy, especially the Northeast, where that's 110-year-old, a lot of these, there's a, there ever, you may, of course you guys are aware of this, under the Hudson River, there are two tunnels that connect the south of the U.S. with the Northeast. So if you want to get something from southern New Jersey or Virginia or Miami to, New, uh, to Connecticut or Boston or wherever, it goes through these two tunnels that are from, I believe, 1905, something like that. Wow. And we, we were supposed to fix them and under the last administration, there was, there was the, the budget was stopped. And I haven't heard what's happened. I'm assuming it's rolled into this new, this new infrastructure bill. But the fact that you have two tunnels that are responsible for everything that happens, some, the number of people that go between just on Amtrak, between New York and, and Washington, is, is a, it's huge and it's pretty high value traffic. Um, you know, that stops. So I think there's, you know, the, the, these, this realignment of economic activity and who goes where is going to have huge impacts. And I think rail is going to be one of those areas where it gets looked at again. I mean, it's, it's so in America, it's so um, cargo focused that it really skews outcomes and investment away from, from passenger rail. But I don't know. I think that there's, there's scope to look at that. It's funny you say that because I, I recall in the last election cycle, I kept on hearing about the Amtrak president. And I, I had to look. I had to look into that. And apparently, uh, your your current president used to commute from his uh, from his home riding to Washington every day because he had a young family, and uh, it, it was really amazing. And the fact that he got the moniker Amtrak president really shows you know how much he's dedicated to, to rail. So it's it's really incredible. Uh, so 
going on, going and continuing on with that, in terms of investments in infrastructure, and you know how critical it is to have that infrastructure to connect to that vertical and from the, you know, the, the the buildings and all the different things which you deal with, you know, the heavy and civil construction. In order to actually connect into those, you need to have a large enough infrastructure footprint to actually connect into. So, for example, let's take Austin, Texas. It is growing at an exponential rate. And you know what? We're, we're also to blame for that at 4M. I believe uh, our our North American office is going to be relocating or we're going to be establishing our American office in the Austin, Texas area in January. So, But I digress. So, again, the whole point of having having that footprint of infrastructure and the growth for example, the basic needs of every uh, every municipality and every every person living is water, sewer, gas, uh, electrical, telecom, all those different things. And to really meet the need and the growth, you have to expand the system. The system has to be elastic. And right now, we don't have an elastic system. What, you know, what uh, what's your opinion on the elasticity of our system, which is constantly under under strain? I think, you know, it really depends on what part of the system you mean, right? Like I, in, in Austin, sticking with that theme for a moment, I had moved down here maybe, I don't know, 60 days before the freeze last year. So I've spent a lot of time in the north. I was born in the northeast where we have winters. I've never been as cold as I was in Austin, Texas, because there was no red. There was nothing to do. Like the, the, you, the roads were frozen over because, of course, they don't have salt here. It's once every 10 years there's snow. You know what I mean? It's, that wasn't a crazy thing. But what had happened is they hadn't winterized key sensors in all of the, whether it was gas, whether it was actually, believe it or not, one of the nuclear um, uh, reactors shut down of, of three. One of them did because the sensors froze. Because, you know, in, in, so the, the point I'm making in that is the flexibility of the electrical grid is, I think, an underappreciated problem. Everyone talks about going renewable, but, but you he- I'm hearing more and more now. That, that the grid can't handle it. If every and relatedly, if everybody got an electric vehicle today, the grid couldn't handle it. So how are we going to deal with that? Some of it will be people generating at home, but that's there's a limit to that, right? And 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 it, it sounds good until you have to go pay for it or maintain it or clean it or all the other things, as opposed to just plugging it in. So I think our our electrical infrastructure has got to get more attention. I mean, it's the, it's that's ground anyway. It's the front line of climate change is, is delivering electric, well, it's one of them anyway, is delivering electric power. And I think that that, that they're just, we need to invest a lot in that. And I think it's going to be an ongoing, it, I don't think it's a one big sum. I think it's for forever. We're going to have to pay more attention to how electric power goes from point A to point B, especially if we're saying the primary source of power for everything is electricity, which we don't now. We say gas is a big one and oil is another. And sometimes you know, a natural gas. If we're saying everything is electric, that's a fundamental change in how how the, the grid works and whether it even is a grid or is it micro. I mean, do we need to have an interconnected grid? Yes, but but how does that work? You know, how does that work? How does that work with microgrids? I mean, how do you synchronize all that so you're not blowing up generators? Um, it's a it's a tough it's a tough question, and I, I don't know that having it all interconnected the way we currently do is is tenable. I, I'm not, I'm, that's way above my pay grade. So I think flexibility wise, the fact that the electrical grid doesn't blow up routinely is already pretty amazing. Um, you know, our, our Austin has a problem right now where 
you've got a growing number of hugely growing number of people that right because of the pandemic don't want to get in their cars as much as they did. But at some point it will, it will continue to grow and, and you're going to see traffic like Amy was famous for the traffic, the, the pre pandemic traffic. And that's because there's nowhere to build anymore unless you do. I mean, you know, Elon Musk talks about boring under, but you know, even at his best case scenario, it's still a pretty expensive proposition. So no, it's not flexible. The roads are not flexible enough. They're talking about light rail in, in everywhere, to be honest. It's all over the place because nobody can build roads in, in you know, who, how many how many million dollar homes are you going to kick people out of to, to be able to build an extra lane of your highway? You know, you can't. So light rail gets discussed as, as a possible way of, of managing that. Uh, we'll see. That's not that's not so easy either. You know, what? it really drew me back to the fact you said you just relocated from the northeast, from the cold part of the country to a warmer part of the country. What pulled you down to Texas or what pulled, what, you know, was it uh, just the pursuit of work or was it uh, lifestyle or what, what, what really pushed you to go south? Yeah, two things. One is an obvious one, and that is, you know, dollar for dollar, you get so much more here. Um, the other one is I, I, I've lived in very hot countries. I was in Taiwan and Hong Kong and part, warmer parts of China. Um, I don't want to be cold again. I like, I like, so it was very lifestyle. It was, I like the idea that, you know, it's, it was this morning, it's November 1st. It was 50 degrees when I went to the gym at 6 a.m. And it's going to be, I don't know, 75, 80 in, uh, obviously in Fahrenheit. Um, so I, I'm fine with getting hot. I don't like being cold. So that was a personal choice. I believe you're, I remember. you're convinced it's time to, time to move from Canada to Texas as well. There we go. I actually remember a quote from a, uh, a, uh, a TV show, The Wire. No one talks about a 50 degree day. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So, <laughs> it really stuck in my mind. No one talks about a 50 degree you know, 70 degree day. You can talk about 40 degree day. You're cold, but a 50 degree day. No one talks about you, that. You, you, know you just you just grunt and get through it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I've had enough of those here up in Canada as well, and you know, I, I grunt through the entire winter, but you know what? I don't mind. Yeah. I, I actually have four seasons here. And I can yeah. differentiate between all of them. And that's a lifestyle. That's yeah. a lifestyle thing. I, I'm, I, I think, I think personally, I think leaves are great in photos. <laughs> but, you, but, um, uh, continuing uh, your, your line of thought on the grids and how important they are to, to give uh, to give the guys credit. Like I've seen uh, PG&E's uh, CEO talk a lot about uh, uh, undergrounding the uh, and burying the utilities, basically, because they had so much uh, challenges with the fires and with, uh, with the climate change. Uh, I think the, the industry like completely agrees with you. With you. I think they're seeing uh, a, a growing importance in the grid. And I think that the, the EVs, the electrical vehicles, I think is gonna have a lot, a lot to do with that. So. Yes, we'll see about the undergrounding. I, that, I, there was a really great special um, on, on YouTube about this underground um, high tension line between, I forgot where it was, in, in one part of LA to another. So it was like 10 miles. Or it, was a, it was a relative, and the amount of expense it takes to make one of those not blow up or cause a fire, because the, the voltage is huge. So it has to yeah. be in a gel, or it's not a gel, it's an oil. But if there's any bubbles in the oil, it can cause a fire. I mean, it's crazy how much they have to do. So I think undergrounding maybe maybe a, a solution unless there's some technology I'm not aware of. Um, it, it may be a solution for short hops, but it's not going to it can't come close to what high tension lines are are able to do. And you're right; they keep causing fires in in you know 
what used to be a desert and is now lush California. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really interesting what you're saying. So you're saying that uh, a lot of people are for underground, number one, for beautification, number two, for lack of contact, you know, out of sight, out of mind. But uh, the fact you say that uh, it's a lot more expensive to put it underground versus just hang, hanging it topside, are we also looking at uh, the overall expense? When I say that, I mean the societal expense, the, uh, the area which is not going to be able to be developed because of that, and even the expense to the, uh, the actual natural environment. And what do I mean? And of course, with the fires and so on and so forth, you know, every, every time there's a fire, a PG&E has to cut off half a, a large portion of the state from electricity because they do not want to further any of yep. those fires. So for, our, for our going forward, would it not be the logical point, even though uh, the cost is, is uh, as you kind of, I'm going to paraphrase, outrageous, would it not be for us beneficially to actually take the, the time and, and put all these different lines underground? Don't you think that's the, the, the issue with infrastructure generally? It's the tragedy of the commons. That old fable from England where, you know, they had a commons where cows could go and graze, but nobody had to pay for it. So everybody bought, the, everybody bought more cows and all of a sudden there was no grass. So I think that, you know, everything environmental suffers from this and infrastructure suffers from this, that, that these are all long-term benefits for short-term costs. And that's a tough one. That's what government is for. That's that's the definition of market failure is a misalignment of cost and benefit is that's when someone has to step in and say, we're going to do this. And a way to do that is to make the long term costs more immediate. And that's carbon taxes. That's other ways. Um, and I think, you know, there's talk about that. There's talk about that. It's a tough one, you know, um, you yeah. know, it's a tough one. I, I will say, you know, the, the other side of the of the coin, though, is. Uh, or of the argument is, you know, Germany was pretty dramatic in their shift away from coal, such that when they had interruptions in intermittent sources, they had to go buy very expensive coal and wound up skyrocketing their utility costs, primarily, obviously, electrical, but also um, wound up polluting more than they were before. Now, that was an interruption and it was a, you know, they'll get there. But it was it was also an example of a one-sided set of, of, of or one, uh, one-dimensional decision is we have to cut out coal, but we're not going to think about the reliability of what we're replacing it with. I mean, I think there was a joke that someone said, you know, they wanted to use um, sun and wind in a cloudy, windless country. <laughs> so I'm oversimplifying, and obviously they're, they're not idiots, and they made decisions based on, on some things, but it didn't turn out that well for some number of years. So I do think that you know, figuring out how to balance the long-term um, needs with what's it going to, not only is how you, how do you bring forward costs so it's logical to make a change now, but how do you, how do you make that change at scale when you don't fully understand, you know what I mean? Like we understand the implications of the current arrangement, but a, a future arrangement has unknown risks, which definitely slows people down. It certainly loses votes. It's really funny because I, I see that it's always a band-aid effect. You know, only when it actually hurts do you do something about it. Yeah. And yeah. because of the political cycles, it, it's it's so extreme going from one uh, one hand to the other. You know, and uh, a lot of people would say, you know, we're we're sick of the political cycles. Let's just get all these things done right now. I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to cost. But it's it's really incredible how it, it's always been a uh, a reciprocal cycle. It goes round and round and round. One politician doesn't like the project, he kills it. The other yeah. one comes in, he puts it back in, 
you know, and the, and everything's done so quickly and it's got to be this legacy project. You know, yes, we have to get it built now. Let's do it now. Let's do it now. And, you know, just time and, uh, and money and, you know, just the amount of effort poured into that one project would be canceled four years later is incredible. And it's, um, it's, I, it's almost a, a, a tragedy of, you know, it's almost a you know, <laughs> tragedy where you keep on going round and round and round. I think that, that public sentiment driven by headlines is moving to a place where I, I do think it, it will be a little bit less cyclical. I think that the, the, the overall trend is, is, it looks like is going towards, well, first of all, just the, just the, the um, electric vehicle penetration. You know, Tesla's really pushed that, but now everybody wants, I mean, just the stock price makes every other car company say, let's do that. <laughs> the thing they're doing. Minus the, you know, minus the, the smoking dope on, on uh, Joe Rogan. So, so I think that that, that, that demand alone is going to drive, maybe it's a crisis, maybe it's a development, maybe who knows. Maybe it's a tax that, that funds some of this stuff. But I do think that, that whether it's generational or just how many years in a row do we need to see California on fire to start believing it and, and Louisiana, you know, sinking into the ocean. And, and, you know, if you look at Miami Beach, every day they have a flood, every day. And it's water bubbling. It's crazy. Um, so I think that, 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 that I think that cycle is flattening a little bit. There may be a bit of a rearguard action, um, you know, to try to slow it. But I think as a society everywhere, we're, we're getting to a place where I do think that spend on infrastructure is going to, to go up, you know, whether it's climate mitigation or just bridges that don't fall down. It's you. How, uh, uh, taking us back to the technology uh, conversation, how do you see companies and let, let's call it uh, industry leaders um, taking advantage of the upcoming technologies? Like, what, what do you see as the best practices of, of doing that? And what should companies be not only looking for it, but looking out for it? So I think what you've seen over the last five, at least five years, but I hear that number a lot, five years, is contractors have started getting more and more sophisticated about how they manage this increasing uh, flood of solutions. So, you know, a couple of big exits. I mean, look, first of all, people said, oh, there's an opportunity. Let's go make some stuff. Um, but also commercial, or, sorry, consumerization of software meant that there were people doing things on the field five, six, 10 years ago anyway. As soon as the iPhone became really viable and apps became really viable, people started doing things in the field anyway, which drove one wave of, of uh, innovation the same time, some of the primarily the, the um, uh, accounting software drove themselves into into the field as well. You got some exits. Plan Grid made eight hundred million, I think it was. There's a few others like that. So now there's all these startups that are are trying to get into construction, and as a result, contractors have said, not only could this be a, a table stakes, forget about being better than others. It's at least this good. We have to be. So most of them have an innovation team that is a conduit to bring, to kind of survey the world and understand what's out there. But they're also surveying internally. Year one, they often don't. But by year two, they figure out, oh, we should probably understand what the project teams need. Um, so usually they all get there. Um, so they're surveying what's, so they become kind of a market maker almost, where they're understanding what the demand is internally and what the supply is externally. And I've found some of them in terms of best practices is, um, you know, using knowledge management software, so things that can keep track of 400 softwares that 
they may or may not be using. Or if you're a larger contractor, you'll often have 20 or 30 pilots going on at once, like one project, one project, and one project. How do you keep track of all that? Well, again, knowledge management software is built for that. That's a best practice that I see in some and don't in others. Um, the other thing is really beginning to understand what metrics you put into a pilot. Um, whereas, you know, in the beginning, people don't do that. In the beginning, they just say, try it, you know, work on, on Fred's project over there and see how it goes. Now they have standard metrics that they're and a process they go under. The third piece that's, that's really interesting from a um, best practices is what do you do with a successful pilot? So companies, Flora was doing this really early where they had actually a process where they would do videos and they would essentially create internal marketing to say, this solution has spent six months or a year with us. Here are the results. Here's where it's applicable. Check it out if you want. Call this person and they'll, they'll connect you. So I think that that, that on the one hand is, is you know, standing up a team to, to play that market maker, then understanding how pilots are run well, and finally, post-pilot, what do you do? Most people, most contractors are a little averse to real enterprise agreements where everybody has to use this. Enterprise agreements often are, this is our approved list and we've negotiated a, 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 a price reduction. Because again, it's so project-based and projects are so, the discretion given to a, pro, a project manager who's trusted to run that thing, that project, is, is so much that they, they tend not to want to insist somebody use one. I mean, it happens, of course. But most of the time, an enter well, not most, a lot of the time anyway, I don't want to be too, you know, uh, sweeping in my statements here, but I see over and over again enterprise state uh, agreements that are not a guarantee it'll be used, but they are a guarantee that it'll be considered and that you'll get a certain price. It's it's really uh, it's really funny to say that. One of the things I've learned in over over my years, right through and through, is the hardest thing in change management is actually change. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I actually, I, I, a couple of years ago, I, I did a course. Uh, the company I work for. Uh, brought in a, uh, a a full learning module with the, with Harvard uh, Harvard Business Publishing, and they had entire modules based upon change management. And as well as Crestcom, where I did the leadership program there, again, everything was about change management and managing change and leading change and how things are going and how the evolution going forward has to be based upon change management, accepting the change and actually adopting the changes. So it's it's really an amazing thing. Like, you said it's all about change management. It's all about understanding how the wheel is turning. And I, I really like that. And uh, I'm going to take that away and I'm going to really start researching that again, just seeing how things, how uh, the, the construction industry, you've given me a, a nugget here to take a look at and really go forward and try and compare what we're doing in the utility industry hmm. and uh, the mapping industry to what's going on in the actual construction industry and that focus on uh, on getting more efficient and really understanding the, uh, the metrics of construction. Well, I think what's happening also from a change management standpoint is it's a new muscle for contractors. They're, they're very flat organizations that are not, well, almost by definition, not hierarchical. And as a result, they don't necessarily think about uh, leader-driven change. Whereas in a Procter and Gamble or a you know a utility maybe, you do have a hierarchy and you do have goals set at the top that are relevant to everyday work, and that's that's happening in construction. But that's not obvious how a contractor would organize themselves. 
they have some policies, they have some, you know, fin especially financial policies, some quality policies, some safety policies. But in terms of how you do your work, you're given, you're given a lot of discretion, not least because every building is a prototype and building something in Florida and building something in, in you know, Manitoba is a little bit different. So but I think that this... Though? Say again? Isn't that all connected? You know, the, the procedures which are dealt with from the company or which are given from the company are all about safety, are all about uh, procedures and all about uh, metrics on how to do things. But isn't that all interconnected? Isn't that the way the company has become who it is today by all those different items interconnecting? I don't know. I, 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 think, I think it was a lot of it was hiring the right people and having some core approaches um, and, you know, s smart people at the top who won really, really big business that they then grew into the ability to, to, to do. Um, I think that, that the idea of, again, when it comes to things like safety and quality and finance, those three, you, you can't survive without some standards there. But in terms of, of you know, what scheduling, how to schedule things, how to, how to interact with your data or how to deal with, with technology and so on, I think that that's one of those areas that you're you're finding an increasing. Uh, the, the top is either focusing on it or not, and that there's, it's almost a stark difference I'm seeing across companies, where the top may or may not be saying it, and in some cases they're really investing in it, and you can see that difference uh, in in how they behave and, and what they're what they're onboarding. Hugh, why do you think it's taken so long? Like, if we're talking about if we're saying that there's so much. Uh freedom of, uh, of management in, the, in, in each project, basically. Why aren't we seeing more technologies involved in projects? Like why, why is it so hard? I would, I would challenge the premise a little bit. There's a ton of technology. And in fact, the number of pilots going on in a $2 billion contractor, I think dwarfs, absolutely dwarfs the number of pilots you'd see in any other industry. So this trope that, that construction is slow, I think, is, is a little misplaced. Point to the other place where drones are used. So they found immediate use in drones, and all of a sudden they're everywhere. I mean, I'm overstating it. I think the issue with construction is because it's a tight P&L that is very tightly, like you can, you can see how the, how the budget and, and activities relate to each other more tightly than I think is true in a lot of other, country, a lot of other uh, uh, industries. So if there isn't day one value, nobody's going to learn on their project how to use this thing. So I think a lot of what has slowed some of the things that might drive technology is that, that if it wasn't immediately useful and the cost of learning it wasn't close to zero, they're like, I, I, you know what, great idea, we'll do it another time. So I think that the, the bar for adoption is, is just really like, it, it'll, it better add value on Monday, or um, unfortunately, I can't afford to do that. Some of the things that the innovation teams do, though, is provide a little of that buffer, where they can create either a kind of a fake uh, pilot, or they can, they can support a project team, either with money or with manpower. So that's overcoming that a little bit. But I think this idea that can, there's a couple things. You know, in the 1980s, there was a, 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 a professor who I think is still around called Robert Solo. And he, he said, look, we've been investing in IT since 1971. And where's the productivity? It was called the productivity paradox or Solo's paradox, depending on which cheerleader you were listening to. The point he made was that, that, that he, was, uh, he was ringing the bell as an economics professor. But what was, came out of that was you can adopt all the technology, but until the human processes change, all you're doing is tightening and, and, and a little bit of optimizing. 
So I think what happened in the 90s across the, the, the certainly the manufacturing sector, but service sectors as well, a little bit later, is process reengineering. You know, the the was the, the core the core competence of the of the all these things that sounded like buzzwords, but they were really about changing how you do things in the presence of technology. So I think there's a wave of change in how things get done in in construction that we can't point to yet. Because I don't think anyone's figured it out, but at some point, this amount of data, this amount of, of technology is going to lead to fundamental changes in how things get done. And then you'll start to see productivity in aggregate change. I also think that the way of build, taking productivity from civil and from, um, from commercial and from home building, that's, those are pretty different activities to try to lump together. So I, I don't love that one. But your, your central question about why is it slow? I don't know that it is slow, but I do. I will tell you, adopting new technology in the middle of a project is is almost non. You, you should assume that won't happen very often, unless something's really broken, because um, they've got what they have and they've got their people. And let's go execute and try not to lose money. Um, so I think that that's a, that is a, definitely something that makes it slow. Is you've got you know fifty or a hundred or a thousand projects going on at once, all not lined up with each other. So it's hard to have an an, uh, an enterprise wide adoption. But I do think there's a lot of technology being tried. There's a lot of it being deployed. So much so that the average person in the field is like, dude, not another app. You know what? Uh, it's it's absolutely incredible what you're saying. How do we keep those standards up to date with this evolving technology? And you, you were just saying, you know, that there's a lot of different pilots on the go right now, and the adoption uh, the adoption of these new technologies is evident. But how do we actually build standards to meet that if it's always evolving and adopting? And I, I think the steel industry, you know, th that industry has been around for 40, 50 years. It was actually written to a, a standard in 2002, and only right now in uh, 2022 or 2021 is it, it it actually had a rewrite and a relook to adopt a new technology to uh, further refine the actual uh, the actual nomenclature and the actual wording of the uh, of the standard to to meet today's to today's need. But really, how would you adapt that? And how like a new technology comes in tomorrow? How do we actually adapt those uh, those best practices? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think some of that is going to be up to the company. Well, right now, all of it is up to the company. I do think you'll find some standards with data governance. Um, there are some standards with cybersecurity, um, SOC 2 being one, FedRAMP being the one that's um, a little bit more federal, obviously. Um, you know, somebody has to come together and decide that they were going to invest their time and go fundraise, because it's usually not a company doing this, to create a standard that then is credible one of the things that I find among contractors is they tend to be very inwardly focused. They trust themselves and they really don't trust even another. I mean, they trust another one before they trust somebody else, but they tend to want things coming internally. I, I had an interesting conversation with a bunch of uh, folks doing some analytics at different contractors. And I asked if any of them had talked to the software teams that do dashboards for a living. And they said, no, we grew them all internally. And where they could have gotten someone in for free to teach them best practices, sure. but it just their their instinct is to to do it internally because our our needs are what our needs are. So I think that you know what, what you're going to find, I believe, is these innovation teams are going to merge with and or uh, augment the IT teams that started off keeping the emails working and keeping the the systems working, and are becoming in some places very strategic and in other places less so. Um, I've seen some presentations from IT teams that were really impressive and others that are not. So I think that that's, 
to answer some of what you meant is I think it will merge to IT teams who are now thinking it's at least enterprise wide. And, and in time, they'll start to think, you know, a little bit more broadly than that, because as IT teams, they'll be talking to each other at a level that's far enough away from projects that nobody feels like it's being, you know, competitive. That's just, I think that's the development of the industry. You know, that, that's such a great topic. And we can, we can talk about it for hours. I, I am going to ask you a really important question right now. Hmm. In terms of what you're doing, and now in terms of uh, your move to Austin, have, do you have your Yeti cup yet? Because as I understand, <laughs> there is a massive, yeah, it's very funny. There's a massive Yeti place right, right down the road. I do. In fact, I have more than one Yeti. Okay. So your yeah. transition to Austin is complete. It, that, that, in, that in, I also have a favorite taco place. Apparently that's the other thing. Well, there we go. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I did want to, you know, take it a little bit to the lighter side. Is there anything else uh, that, that you've taken from this conversation? Because I know that I have a lot which I'm going to go back and look at. And a lot of things which you've said have really have made me think. And that's what I love about these conversations. I'm hearing from the, the broad, uh, the broad sector of all the different uh, pieces of the, uh, of the proverbial, uh, of the proverbial puzzle. So I'm really, really happy that uh, you were able to join us. David, anything else? No, Hugh, it was really, a, really a pleasure. Um, there was, Lots of amazing insights uh, that came up during this uh, during this conversation. Lots that our listeners can learn from about what's happening in the macro level. Um, and I hope uh, I hope that after uh, season one, we'll bring you again to season two. I appreciate you having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you guys. Perfect. Yeah. All Thank right. Thank you so much.